Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, you know we love to start with anecdotes yes. on our podcasts. And sometimes when we talk about um, more embarrassing topics, they can the anecdotes get more embarrassing. Um, and today we're going to talk about menstrual products. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about menstrual cups. We're going to talk about tampons. We're going to talk about pads. We're going to talk about the whole gamut. And so when I cast my mind back for anecdotes about this, there's one that just sticks in my mind. All right. It was, it was a pretty traumatic experience for me as a kid. So I think like most people, when I got my period, I started on pads. And then um, tampons only came into the picture when I was going on a beach trip. Because, you know, you go swimming. That was sort of like the benchmark I know for me and a lot of my friends when your mom finally taught you about tampons. Yeah, pads and swimsuits are just... It's just awkward. They don't mix. So anyway, um, you know, my mom taught me before the trip how to use the tampon. And she was like, you know, if if it goes wrong, just go into like a bathroom, take some quarters and buy a tampon. There's machines in there. We can get a tampon if something goes wrong. So the church group, I don't know if I mentioned, but it's a church, church, church beach trip, which I think just adds to the awfulness of the story. So we're driving down the road. Me and the church group for the beach trip. Mm -hmm. And uh, we stop at a rest stop after a few hours of driving. And I think, okay, it's probably time to change the tampon. So I go in the bathroom. I had one in my purse. And afterward, I didn't feel exactly right. I'm like, "Mm, I don't think I mastered this quite yet. So I decide I'm going to buy a tampon. Uh huh. So I go in the gas station bathroom. And it's one of those ones that's got two stalls. So anyone could walk in at any time. And the machine on the wall isn't labeled, but I figure that's where the tampons are. That's what my mom said. Put in a quarter and out comes this bright pink condom. Uh huh. And I'm like, well, okay, that side must be the condom side. And over on here, the tampons, right? So then I put in another quarter. Well, you were on a church trip. Why are you buying condoms? I know. By the time that I went through all these unlabeled things, I just had five condoms and no tampons. <laughs> but you were ready for the beach. <laughs> I was. Well, I mean, for that beach trip, condoms weren't really on my packing list, Kristen. I was very young, certainly didn't need them, but I was just mortified that at any moment, anyone from my church group, someone more pious than me, could have walked in and seen me with this handful of condoms. 
<laughs> that's that's a great story, Molly. I really had to tough out have, the rest of that road trip. I have such a perfect image of 12-year-old Molly clutching <laughs> five hot pink condoms and looking terrified. So I should have to tell you that if your mom tells you can buy tampons in a gas station bathroom, it's not always true. <laughs> Sometimes you're going to end up with condoms. That's something your mom never told you. Exactly. And that's the name of the podcast. Well, now that we've all loosened up a little bit with that story... Let's examine menstrual products. Let's go back in history, Molly, to find out where menstrual products came from. How did I end up, years later, standing in a gas station bathroom? Well, if we look back in time, if we get in our little mom stuff time machine and go back to ancient Egypt, there were menstrual products. Women were uh, pretty DIY about the whole thing. They would use internal plugs of wool or soft papyrus. And this is wealthy women. And poor women would use softened aquatic grasses as their makeshift pads and tampons. Yeah, and women in ancient Japan would fashion tampons out of paper and use bandages to hold them in place. Um, traditional Hawaiian women would use the furry part of a native fern called apu. Apu. And um, women still today in parts of Asia and Africa are using grasses and mosses. So, like you said, very DIY. Um, and then we were looking at the site Museum of Menstruation, which is as soon as you start to search for things about menstrual products, that's where you'll end up. And you can look at all sorts of crazy pictures of early tampons and sanitary aprons and all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, but he hypothesizes that a lot of women in European and American societies probably used nothing when they had their period. Yeah, he thinks that uh, women would just let themselves uh, bleed. Uh, quote, um, <laughs> they would leave a trail of blood behind them because they weren't wearing pads or underwear. But he, uh, the guy who runs the Museum of Menstruation, thinks that this wasn't as big of a deal back in the day because women started menstruating later um, in their mid to late teens. And then they were also marrying earlier and hence having babies earlier. And they were also having more babies, therefore breastfeeding more. And so the number of periods in a woman's lifetime was a lot fewer than it is today. Yeah, which we've discussed in our Menstrual Taboo podcast in uh, the one about only having a few periods a year. Mm-hmm. So that's not a new idea. And by the way, the, the guy's name who runs the Museum of Menstruation, it's Harry Finley. And so he's looked at a lot of um, scholarly books that examine women's journals. Um, for example, Pioneer Women. They've looked at all their journals, and none of them ever talk about, you know, running out of cloth or anything like that. And unpacking lists for the trip west, you never see anything warning women that they need, you know, extra cloth or extra whatever they were using at that time, which is why he thinks that to keep what little cloth they did have sanitary, they just bleed. Right. Um, and it wasn't until... 1896 that we have the first commercial disposable sanitary pad, um, which was developed by Johnson and Johnson and it was called, uh, the Lister pad, but, uh, they weren't really that popular before then women would use, um, textiles that were basically used for baby diapers, I believe as, um, their sort of reusable pads and, they recommended that women, upper-class women who are menstruating should go travel to relieve their symptoms. And there were actually burners available in different places so that traveling women who were on their period could burn their cloth tampon or cloth pads. 
But for the most part, I mean, these these sort of advances were only available to the upper class. For the most part, the the lower class women were still having to wash their own cloths, reuse them every every month. Um, but it wasn't until World War One that nurses started saying, "Hey, these disposable towels—they've got the really good like cotton." Padding. This is really good at sopping up blood. Yeah, there was actually a new kind of a cotton product that was developed for World War One um, or for World War One soldiers who were injured. And like you said, they realized that uh, that they were better at soaking up the blood. And so then you have the production of cellucotton and cellunaps by Kimberly Clark, and those would eventually become the brand name Kotex. And Back then, they did not have the benefit of adhesive the way we do today. So you wore a belt with those pads. Um, we did not get adhesive until the 1970s, yes. which seems kind of insane, but I guess it makes sense. Um, but anyway, when they figured out that, you know, we can give these um, medically approved products to women, the the pharmacists who had to sell them in their stores were like, oh, I don't know about that. I think it's going to offend every lady who comes in here to see those. But... Someone told them, hey, actually, women need them, but they don't want them to be hidden behind a counter, so they have to ask you for them. They want to be able to leave their money on a counter and take their box of menstrual pads and leave. Yeah, drugstores would actually put out little blue boxes, Kotex boxes, that women could just drop their coins in and scurry away with their with their Kotex pads without having to face down a clerk and, and ask for such a... Such an unladylike product. It was one of the first self-service products. I mean, we take for granted the fact we can go into a grocery store and just do all our shopping on our own, besides without giving someone a list of what we wanted. Um, but Kotex led the way with that, apparently. Yeah, and this is in the 1920s, and um, women, obviously, because we have these collection boxes for them, um, are very still very squeamish about the whole idea of sanitary napkins and products and really anything having to do with uh, the region south of the border. Although they are trying to advertise at this point, these products as very hygienic. You know, people back there are obsessed with hygiene. They don't want to catch any disease. And so um, that's how they were advertised. And like I, like we said, the, the marketing by doctors saying this is okay made it acceptable. But at the same time, in the 1920s, we've got this guy named Dr. Earl Cleveland Haas, and he's a doctor, obviously, and doctors at this point were sort of making their own tampons for women during surgeries. So it was sort of a doctor, doctor use thing, but he's seeing his wife and she's really uncomfortable with a big bulky pad. So he's like, I'm going to do something about this. Yeah. So Haas basically figures out how to make a tampon applicator, the first tampon applicator, uh, so that women would not have to manually insert the tampon into their vagina and could pull it out, uh, making the whole process less messy. But they didn't catch on at first. Haas ended up selling the patent um, for the tampon applicator in 1933 because he really couldn't market the product at all because companies were saying that it wouldn't catch on. And, you know, my favorite fun fact about Haas we were talking about earlier, Kristen, is that he called his product Tampax. The thing he came up with, which looks a lot like the tampon today with a removable string, he came up with that. And he also came up with this compactor device that would basically mold the cotton he was using into the tampon shape. Um, but when he filed for all his patents and trademarks and whatever, he came up with Tampax because it was a combination of the word tampon and vaginal pack. Oh. So just think about that the next time you use Tampax. 
Yeah, but uh, but Haas wasn't the first one to try to manu- or market tampons. There were plenty of uh, non-applicator tampons that were on the market, and some people disagree as to which one was the first one to uh, to end up in the stores. And uh, the Museum of Menstruation and Straight Dope say that it was Fax, F-A-X, tampons. But there were also other lovely brand names such as Fibs, <laughs> Holly Packs, Modern Women, New Nap, Slim Packs, and I don't, I don't really understand this one. Wix, Wix, W I X, a candle wick. I don't, I don't know. So anyway, the reason that Haas is kind of set apart as the modern tampon is because he comes up with the string to get it back out, and he comes up with an applicator, which is key. But like Kristen said, he sells the business because he just is not having any luck. He sells it to a woman named Gertrude Tenderick who is the one who actually charters the tampon corporation in 1934. And in the early days, she would make the tampons herself using a sewing machine and the hand-operated compressor that Haas came up with. But she, like the Kotex people, had a lot of problems getting these things into stores. Yeah, because uh, they were very controversial when they first came out uh, because people were concerned that women would put these tampons in their vaginas and hence no longer be virgins. And that's a problem that exists today in some developing countries. Yeah, there's still the concern that if you put a tampon in, it's going to break your hymen. And in some countries and cultures, that's very important for a young girl who is supposed to be getting married. If her hymen is not intact, then she's going to have a lot of problems. And, uh, you know, we I can't imagine personally a life without tampons. And I hope that one day all gas stations are equipped with the machines. But... Tampons are a pretty American phenomenon. According to Straight Dope, 70% of American women use them, but only 100 million of the world's 1.7 billion menstruating women do. And there are also differences between the types of tampons that American and European women like, Molly. Um, according to Elizabeth Kissling's book, Capitalizing on the Curse, the Business of Menstruation, around 97% of European women prefer digital tampons, which are the ones like OB tampons that don't have an applicator that you have to put in yourself, um, while only 3 to 4% of American women do. And it seems like there is uh, more of a cultural sensitivity in the United States to not having to um, deal as closely, have as, be in as close a contact with uh, your vagina when it comes to menstruation, which is probably why it took a little while for Tampax to get the message out about tampons being safe and clean for women to use, because one of the big things that they did to spread the word was to actually have Tampax ladies go out to colleges and educate college girls about how to use tampons, right? Yeah, and so that was how they appealed to consumers. At the same time, they tried to appeal to doctors saying, hey, you've used these, you know they're good. And actually, in 1945, there was an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association by Robert Dickinson. Um, he went through all the previous studies that have been done about tampons, most of which tampons pass with flying colors. And in his report, he essentially uh, endorsed tampons over menstrual pads because they controlled odor, they didn't cause disease, they were safe, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
the doctors and the consumers at the same time are getting this message that tampons are awesome. And World War II actually helped popularize tampons as well because there was a shortage on cotton. So uh, tampons used obviously less cotton in textiles than sanitary pads did. And women who were returning to the workforce liked the tampon, using tampons better than pads because they didn't feel as bulky and awkward during that time of the month. Exactly. Now, Kristen, whenever we talk about tampons, Tampons too much. We hear a lot from our listeners who are in love, as we've mentioned before, with their menstrual cups. Yes. And I did not realize that menstrual cups had such a long history. They came about sort of at the same time that tampons did in the 1930s. Yeah, they were first patented in 1937 by a woman named Leona W. Chalmers. She was an actress. And it's worth mentioning that Early adopters of all these products were usually actresses and dancers. Yes. People who needed to hide the fact that they were menstruating. Yeah. And, uh, she developed this thing called the Tasset. Um, and it was a disposable menstrual cup, basically. And, um, Tasset didn't stick around too long, but 20 years later, uh, this a woman who had used the Tasset back in the day developed something that many mom stuff listeners know and love called the Keeper. From there, we have all sorts of options. There's Diva Cup. There's Instead. We won't be able to list them all, but basically they all work the same way in that they're a soft, flexible cup made out of, you know, rubber or some sort of material like that that you fold and put up into the vagina. And like you mentioned with the differences between applicator tampons and digital tampons, Kristen, I think this is why these don't catch on immensely. It's, it's for the same reason. Women don't want to be all up close and personal with the body especially when it's menstruating. And, you know, given how these things have been marketed over the age with tampons being something that we're going to be the epitome of hygiene, you can see why people think that having to deal with it is unhygienic. Yeah, because uh, the disposable or the reusable, I should say, menstrual cups actually fit up just underneath the cervix. So it does take a little bit of work to get it up there. And it holds um, the menstrual blood for up to 12 hours, I think. And with some, you can even uh, sleep in them, which is different from a lot of tampons, which you have to change out every few hours or so. Yeah, it looks like lifestyle is a big reason why women go for these. You can go swimming. You can sleep in them. Some of them you can have sex with them in. Um, other reasons women go for menstrual cups are um, savings. If mm-hmm. you buy a keeper, apparently it's $35 and lasts for 10 years while the New York Times claims that a 10-year supply of tampons costs about $650. And Molly, no pun intended, but I think that some women also feel more in touch with their bodies when they use these reusable cups because, sure, there is like a cultural squeamishness about menstruation and about women having to deal with the issues going on in their vagina, as we talked about in our Is Menstruation the Last Taboo podcast. But I think um, women who are big fans of the disposable cups um, feel like it's something that we should embrace more and we should be comfortable with our bodies. And as a salon article on menstrual cups points out, being in touch with our body via a menstrual cup can help you know if there's a problem. If you are changing a menstrual cup four times a day and they're completely full, then you might have a problem with your menstrual cycle. It's time to go to the doctor. And in addition to reusable menstrual cups, we also have reusable pads now for the more environmentally minded among us. Um, and Glad Rags, we've got some Glad Rags listeners out there. Hey, ladies, um, is one of the uh, brands that you can pick up. And it was described in a salon article as menstrual lingerie because they do come in a variety of delightful patterns. 
I mean, the patterns are pretty adorable. Yeah, Molly was really into these reusable pads. And they even offer underwear with built-in pads, too, if you don't want to fool with uh, the changing out the pads and the liners. So one thing about cloth pads is there is a slightly bigger investment up front. might be about 7 to $10 each. Um, and you should probably have about a dozen on hand so that you have time to wash and, and whatnot. Um, some other alternatives we just want to throw out there are um, sea sponges. We mentioned them before, but you have to, it's basically where you get a sponge. They're usually like at health food stores and whatnot. Um, squeeze it, insert it into the vagina, and then rinse it every three hours. And then do a complete wash dry after the after your period's over. And then the other thing that people look for are non-chloron bleached all cotton pads and tampons, which I think leads us well into the how the health effects of these products have been evaluated over the years. Right. One of the main reasons that um, women will turn to the reusable menstrual cups and other alternative products is because of the bleach that might be in uh, tampon cotton. Uh, because obviously you're putting it up there. It's very um, thin tissue. Women don't like the idea of um, bleach and other chemicals getting into their systems. And according to the FDA, um, uh, the levels of chemicals are safe in tampons, obviously. Um, the FDA reviews all tampons that go on the market and test any levels. Um, for instance, there was an Internet rumor going around that tampon makers will put asbestos in their tampons in order to make women bleed more and hence make them use more tampons. And so the FDA went over and reviewed asbestos levels in tampons and found that that was um, not true mm-hmm. at all. And um, there's also the question of whether or not a chemical called dioxin is present in tampons as well. And they're saying that the bleaching method that involved dioxin is no longer used in most tampon products. But now let's talk about the big elephant in the room, Kristen. Yes. Toxic shock syndrome. Toxic shock syndrome. This was something I remember when I first started using tampons, picking up the box and flipping it around, looking, looking at it, you know, figuring out how to, how to do the whole thing and seeing this thing called toxic shock syndrome. I was terrified. I had no idea what it was. It sounds, it sounds scary. So Molly, should, should women using tampons be scared of toxic shock? Well, Kristen, before we get into whether women should worry about, as you put it, toxic shock, let me just tell you what it is. It's dryness or ulcerations of vaginal tissues. It does sound unpleasant. I remember being horrified when I once went seven hours without changing a tampon. I was convinced I was going to die. And toxic shock can be fatal. And the people that were dying back in the heyday of this of this happening, they were all menstruating women using tampons, which is why how tampons became so closely associated with this condition. But it's worth noting that it's extremely rare. In 1997, only five confirmed menstrually related toxic shock syndrome cases were reported. Right. And they weren't associated with just any old kind of tampon. It was super absorbent tampons. And they're thinking that uh, the women might have gotten toxic shock because they left the tampons in too long and with so much so much stuff up there, um, it just became a breeding ground for bacteria. Um, and menstruating women aren't the only people who can get toxic shock. Uh, older women, children, and even men can get it as well because it's all um, based on a bacterial toxin that anyone can acquire. Um, uh, most common types of bacteria are strep and staph. And so they're not entirely sure why it's linked to tampons, but... 
um, and they have to, I think because of the FDA regulations, they have to put the warning on tampon boxes. But it is a very, very, very rare thing that happens. And one tip is not to use a tampon, ladies, between menstrual periods. Yeah, if you got something funky going on up there, shouldn't be coming out, don't get a tampon, go to the doctor. But it's worth noting that menstrual cups are not immune to accusations of toxic shock syndrome. Essentially, once, um, you know, they've, they've caught off, they've caught on uh, amongst a, a fair number of women. And once they started to catch on, um, people started to say, well, is it safe to be holding so much menstrual blood up there in your vagina for hours and hours? Is that safe? Are you going to get toxic shock syndrome? Are you going to get endometriosis? What did they find, Kristen? Well, they found that with toxic shock, there is a very slight chance, but it's probably the same amount of risk as with uh, with tampons. But as far as endometriosis goes, um, there doesn't seem to be any kind of elevated risk with having the menstrual blood um, so close to your cervix. Right. And so what they did to test that was they essentially dipped menstrual cups into all sorts of bacteria and saw how many stuck and then evaluated the ones that were coming out of women and found that it was a very minimal risk. So that's another reason why women turn to the menstrual cup. Yeah. So, Molly, we have gone from ancient Egypt. Papyrus. Papyrus to 2009 with tampons, all sorts of sanitary napkins. No more belts. No more belts. Thank goodness. Although maybe they'll come back and be the new retro thing. The new new girdle for 2010 will be yeah. the menstrual belt. And uh, reusable options. I mean, we've, we've really, we can really control our period blood any old way we want to these days. And it's been a delightful journey, I have to say. So we hope that you have enjoyed our fun-filled romp through the history of menstrual products. We've gotten a lot of emails from you guys requesting the history of tampons and also shout-outs to reusable menstrual cups. So ladies, this podcast is for you. And if you ever want to email us, please feel free to, to shoot us a note at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And speaking of which, Molly, we got a couple of emails about our episode on women's magazines. Why don't you kick it off? Okay, I've got an email here from Amber, who is 13. And she writes, I'm not interested in the topics in magazines like Seventeen and Cosmo Girls, so I read science magazines like Wired, Scientific American, and National Geographic. They still have topics about health, but it's about future medications and cures for diseases. And sometimes they have things about futuristic clothes. Some people at school think it's weird I don't read magazines like Bop or Tiger Beat, but those are the people who get bad grades. So basically what I'm trying to say is that there are other alternatives for people who don't want to read women's magazines. Right on. Um, and I've got an email from Sabrina. She says, I've had an interesting journey with Cosmo over the past few years. After picking up a Cosmo in 2007 at an airport during a three-hour layover, I started subscribing solely to enjoy the fluffy, guilty pleasure after a long day at work. I'm 28 and I've been married for five years to my college boyfriend and I have a daughter, so I know enough to roll my eyes and laugh out loud when I read the use a thong as a hair tie tip. Um, but I both love and hate Cosmo. I love laughing at the stupidity and the confessions and the occasional tip on a good moisturizer or the anti-hair or anti-frizz hair product. But I hate how they boil being a woman down to the superficialities and sex. I hate the idea of my daughter picking up a magazine like this in 10 years and thinking that this is what being a modern woman is all about. Copying the latest celebrity hairstyles, wearing expensive clothes, and impressing a guy with things like the one sex move that every guy loves. 
While I was pregnant, I ended up with a subscription to Parents Magazine. Occasionally, my issues of Cosmo and Parents arrive in the mail on the same day, which always strikes me as funny. After becoming a mother, Cosmo um, seemed to sink to an even more shallow level. How to score knockoff designer clothes seems pretty silly when you're dealing with a colicky newborn and haven't showered in almost a week. When my subscriptions to each uh, were close to ending earlier this year, I decided to renew both of them. Fundamentally, I still disagree with Cosmo and would never defend them, but choosing to subscribe only to parents felt like I was choosing to be completely consumed by motherhood and giving up on the non-mother side of me that still wants tips on moisturizers and frizz tamers and yes, sometimes even learning ridiculous sex moves or at least laughing about them with my husband. Thanks, Sabrina. Thanks, Sabrina. And like Kristen said, you can always email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. If you don't have anything to say, but you want to see what we're saying, then head over to our blog, How To Stuff, where one of us posts every weekday. And if you want to learn more about women's health, head on over to howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.